You know, before I forget and get into uh, this week's message, I want to encourage you to pick up some of these invite cards that are out in the uh, atrium after the service. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, who will be here next Sunday evening to begin his uh, lecture series, travels the world, literally, um, lecturing on things as it, in the church as it relates to the Messianic kingdom, and particularly from a uh, Jewish standpoint. Arnold was born into a Jewish family and received Christ when he was 14 and was shown the door when he was 18, the day he graduated high school. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but in a Jewish family, if you follow Christ, you are dead to that family. All right? That's what Arnold experienced. And he was set off on his own with no family help and achieved his doctorate uh, from uh, University of New York. He got his master's at Dallas Theological Seminary. He will be speaking on the second coming especially for those of you who are probably 25 and under, it is not common in churches today to speak on the second coming. And so this may be completely new material to you, especially in the college realm. Invite your friends to come for this. Pick up these invite cards and invite them. Arnold has a wealth of knowledge and information. His first night, he'll be speaking on the modern state of Israel in biblical prophecy. And the second night, the Jews and the tribulation. The third night will be the basis of the second coming, and thirdly, it will be the final restoration of Israel on Wednesday night. Those are not-to-be-missed sessions. They're really, really well done. Arnold is an incredibly intelligent man. Um, the other thing I want to draw your attention to is, for those of you who are prayer warriors in this room, and uh, you spend time daily with God doing battle for other people, uh, Kathy Button is really struggling with migraines, and I know you've seen it in the bulletin over and over again, but this week's been rougher than many others, right, David? It doesn't seem to be improving at all. So physically, she's really struggling, so if you'd lift her up in prayer, that would be great. And uh, Don Taylor had a procedure yesterday at the hospital and is recovering at home, so be in prayer for him as well. Well, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to uh, the book of Luke again. We were in Luke last week, and uh, once you get to Luke, um, just kind of hold your thumb there, and I'll tell you what chapter to go to so you don't start reading ahead of time too far in advance. I read in the paper um, last year about a man who went into a bank in Detroit, no less, and he handed a note to the teller at the bank that said, this is a robbery, and I have a gun. Um, I would like $5,000 in 50s and $100 bills. And the very quick-thinking teller held the slip and read it and then handed it back to him and said, I'm sorry, sir, I only have 10s and 20s in my drawer. Would you take a seat over there in the lobby, and I'll get my vice president of the bank to help you. No kidding, he did it. <laughs> he actually went and sat down well, of course, they called the police and, and came and picked him up. What is it about money that has control over us? You don't have to be a bank robber or a jewel thief to lust after money and to hold it in the improper perspective. What is it about money that dictates who we are and what we become? Represents power, perhaps. Maybe it represents authority. Maybe it fills temporary needs. We looked last week at the life of Nicodemus. 
a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he evidenced in his life how transformation takes place between letting go of the things that we held dear in the past and allowing God to transform his thinking to a new reality, a spiritual reality of who he really was in relationship to God. So I have a question for you this morning. Thinking back on what you learned this last week if you were here listening to the message of Nicodemus, can you say your life has been transformed like you saw Nicodemus being transformed? How do you really know? What evidence is there of real transformation? That's a tough one as you analyze your life. From the point where you said, I am going to be a Christ follower, I'm going to set my life aside for God, what evidence is there in your own personal life of real life transformation? And what does transformation look like? And lastly, how does God measure transformation? That's what I want you to look with me at this morning, because God does measure transformation. He gives us an insight in Hebrews chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. Just read it on the screen with me. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now you may not look at that verse and say, that has anything to do with transformation at all. First of all, think in terms of a two-edged sword, what was referred to in the first half of the verse that says it penetrates to the joints and marrow as being the very sharpest instrument the people of that time knew. For us today, it would be a surgeon's scalpel. And it was capable of penetrating, according to Scripture, cutting down to the very joints and the marrow. The Word of God will not penetrate into the life of someone who is not looking for life transformation, someone who is not a follower of God. People who are far from God will look at the Word of God and say, this is gibberish, it does not make sense to me. But to the follower of Christ who reads the Word of God and God's Spirit begins to illuminate that to them, it is indeed like a scalpel, cutting through the flesh, through the muscle, through the fat, getting down to the joints and the marrow. The ancients called it activo divino. And what it merely means is this. God is transcendent in that he rules over the universe that he created, but he's active in the midst of it. He's intertwined. And I'm not saying God's in this pew, like some religions say. God's not in that plant. That's not what I'm suggesting. He's active in the world, orchestrating. Activo divino. It is the infallibility of God's Word, the infallibility of God's Word to be accurate in everything that makes it activo divino. You might want to write that word down. It's one you can use in the office and ask your friends if they know what it means. But it means God is transcendent. He is over everything He created and active in the midst of it. Everything is infused with the Holy Spirit where God is active at work. John 1.4 says this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
for a moment in time, a brief moment in history, only 33 years, God walked on planet earth, walked like you walk, ate like you eat, spent money like you spend money, threw away banana peels, laughed like you laughed. I think if Jesus had been at a beach volleyball game, he would have been the one spiking the ball. He did the things that you did. God enjoyed life and walked with his creation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word demonstrated the power of God to penetrate the heart. That's what I want you to look with me at in Luke chapter 19 this morning. If you would turn there. There's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you as well as it'll be up on top of the screen. It is evident as I read Scripture that Jesus carried a measuring rod, kind of like a tape measure for a carpenter. He carried a spiritual measuring rod to measure transformation. What did real, true spiritual transformation look like? Students in here, how would you like that if your teachers didn't just grade you on the outcome of your product, but also by the effort that you put into it? You may get an A for the outcome by the product, but a D for the effort that you put into it. Jesus didn't just measure the surface. He went deep and measured real, true heart transformation. Now, set up through this lens of viewing and understanding of what's going on here in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is at the very height of popularity. This is only a few weeks before he's to be crucified. As a matter of fact, in Luke 15, it says this. Now, listen closely to this. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Everybody is watching Jesus at this point. From the sinners on the furthest outreaches of the kingdom to those who are the most learned in religiosity practices, from the Pharisees to the sinners and everything in between, they're all coming to him. Now, if you understand that three years earlier, Jesus performed a miracle in which he fed 5,000 people the fish, and then shortly after that, about 20,000 people started following him around the countryside. This is three years later, and it's coming into the peak of the Jewish celebration called the Passover. There are literally tens of thousands of people following Jesus. Now, where we pick it up in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is just entering the city of Jericho. He has just healed a blind man outside of the city. Two weeks before this, he raised Lazarus from the dead. You get the context of what's going on? Extraordinarily popular at this point with the people. They were all expecting the kingdom of God to appear at any moment. Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
Understand that in the first century in Jericho, it was the Wall Street of its day. It was an incredibly successful financial district. It was an important source of cash flow to the Roman world. There were great palm forests that covered the entire city. There were balsam groves. There were mansions that dotted the hillside. Rose gardens. That were, they were known far and wide for their roses because they imported and exported out of the city. And Romans had a, developed a system for preserving roses. And they would export the roses out to other cities. And mansions were all around this city because it was so prosperous. What a great place to be a tax collector. If you want to make some money, this is the place to be. And Zacchaeus had set himself up in the midst of this very exotic community. So exotic, as a matter of fact, that Herod the Great had built a winter mansion for himself inside the city. It was the place to be. Think Bel Air, Malibu, West Palm Beach. It was the place to be. Verse 2 says, And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Plosios is the word, and it means that he was abounding with wealth. Chief tax collector who was very rich. Plosios. Now, what I would like you to think of in your mind when you think of this individual, Zacchaeus, someone who's wearing a Rolex watch, Gucci shoes, Armani suit. If he's driving a Campbell, it's the Lamborghini version of the Campbell. Okay? You got the picture? But he was ruthless. He was annoyingly mean. Tax collectors had a reputation among the people of being so greedy and crude. Jesus hung around with crude people. I have an example for you of just how crude he could be. Excuse some of the crude language you'll see in this clip. But when I think of Zacchaeus, I think of Danny DeVito. I love money. I love money more than I love the things it can buy. Does that surprise you? Money. It don't care whether I'm good or not. It don't care whether I snore or not. It don't care which God I pray to. There are only three things in this world with that kind of unconditional acceptance. Dogs, donuts, and money. Only money is better. You know why? Because it don't make you fat and it don't poop all over the living room floor. There's only one thing I like. Other people's money. Zacchaeus in the flesh. Now, walking into the midst of a crowd for a tax collector was a dangerous thing to do. If they didn't have their Roman garrison with them, they were subject to the assault of the people of the community. The Roman guards protected them because they gouged the people financially. But when they got apart from their garrison, they could be black and blue and beat up from trying to get through the crowds because the crowds would take this opportunity to shove them and push them aside and trip them and kick them. They couldn't prove it in a crowded environment. And we know this is a very crowded environment. Verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. 
So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Hoping to get a glimpse of this extremely popular man, Zacchaeus tries to find a way. No ladders to climb, no light poles to get on, so what does he do? He finds a sycamore tree. Think of like an English oak tree. An English oak has low spreading branches down to the ground. Fig trees, sycamore trees like this, called a sycamore mulberry tree. It's a very sturdy tree. But what a humbling thing to do for a very, very wealthy man, like a child, to climb up in a tree. But he so desperately wanted to see Jesus, he decided it was worth it. Who was this man? He just heard that he healed a blind man outside of the city. He raised someone from the dead two weeks previously. Can you imagine the money you could make if you had those kind of powers? How corrupt could a tax collector be? Zacchaeus was hated because he was by voluntary trade a member of the tax collector tribunal. These are people who set themselves aside and said, I choose to work for the Roman government. And they taxed the Jews and Gentiles alike, and the Jews and Gentiles alike hated them so much that even if they were Jewish, which Zacchaeus was, they were not even allowed to enter the walls of the temple. They could not come in and make any sacrifices. So he literally had shunned off his faith and set himself apart and said, I will not be a person who follows God. When you become a tax collector, you set yourself apart and say, no way, money is more important to me than anything else. Now, when you hear the word sinner in the New Testament, you probably have a picture that enters your mind. So when the people start to grumble and say, he has gone to be the the guest of a man who is a sinner, don't think in the context of the sins that we carry out on a daily basis. Sinner was a label that the Jewish people who were devout attached to a person whom they considered unworthy of their association. A sinner, in the context of the New Testament, is someone who was so egregious in their lifestyle that they wanted nothing to do with them, and they cut themselves off. There was nothing an individual could do other than committing the sin themselves that was worse in the eyes of the Pharisees and the rulers of the people than to sit down and have a meal with a sinner. Having a banquet or a meal with a sinner meant way different things to them than what it does to you and I today. This was a sense of saying, I identify with this person. In their society, in in having table fellowship in this setting, it was a mutual identity of saying, I belong to this person. It's a very dangerous situation that Jesus was entering into because it immediately got people irritated with him. Now, verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Today meaning, I'm going to stay overnight. I hope you have a guest room for me because I'm coming to abide That's the literal interpretation of the word. I'm coming to stay overnight at your house, Zacchaeus. What would that have been like to have Jesus call you up and say, I'm coming over to spend the night with you. And tens of thousands of people are wanting to spend time with him. Will you notice in your scripture that Jesus 
wanted to be a guest of Zacchaeus's before Zacchaeus repented? When you read the story of Zacchaeus, and no matter how familiar you are with it, when you look at it, you see that Jesus came to him before he repented. In Christianity today, there is a great temptation to want the people that we will associate with to be clean and undefiled before we will hang out with them. We are very much like the people of that day who muttered and complained, he's gone to be the guest of sinners. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Before Zacchaeus repented, there is this outrageous, scandalous grace. The same grace that covered your life. Jesus isn't waiting for him to repent. He stretches out the hand first. Recall what it said in Hebrews when we first opened up this message? The Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. Why did Jesus want to stay at Zacchaeus' house? He knows you. He knows Zacchaeus. It does not matter if you have great financial strength or if your financial bank account is devastated. It does not matter if you're a person of reputation or a person who is hated by the world around you. Jesus knows you. You are precious to him. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 49, it says, I have actually scratched your name into the palms of my hands. I have carved you there. That's how precious you are to God. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Zacchaeus' desire to climb that tree and get up on that branch and look out and see Jesus is totally surpassed by Jesus' desire to see Zacchaeus. That is an astounding theological truth. God sought us out before we sought him out. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus. That is a beautiful picture. He saw Zacchaeus' heart. He knew how corrupt he was. And the crowds may have considered him completely unworthy to hang out with this rabbi of the rabbis, the most popular man in the land. But God did not consider him unworthy. Picture it this way. You go to a parade, and you happen to see a black limousine coming down the road. And in the limousine is George W. Bush in a presidential motorcade. He stops the limousine, gets out of his car, and walks over to you on the sidewalk and says, Can I come over and have dinner with you tonight? That's a glimpse of how staggering this was to these people. This was supposedly the Messiah. And he's going to go hang out with his tax collector? Prior to this event, if you had been going over to Zacchaeus' house and looking in his window, you probably would have heard the clatter of gold coins, the clang of silver dishes. But the one thing you couldn't hear was the emptiness of his heart. 
There is no way money could fill the void. He didn't have the friends that you and I would have. Because he was not allowed to go to the synagogue and worship or to the temple and make sacrifices, he was not allowed to associate with God's people. So the kind of people he hung around with, they're doing the bar scene. This is an interesting group of people that Jesus would have encountered. Jesus is not about to attend a potluck dinner at the First Baptist Church of Jericho. You get the picture? This is not a person you typically would associate with. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped. And other translations, translations would say stood. At this point, Zacchaeus stood up because they're at his house. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions, possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Through the laughter and the clatter of the dinner dishes and the crude jokes perhaps in that room, you hear this man small in stature stand up and say, Lord, I'm going to give away half of my possessions to the poor. And if I, ha- if I have defrauded anyone, we all know that he defrauded people. If I have defrauded anyone, I'll pay back $4 for every dollar I've taken. What's happening here? His friends are watching. Do you hear the sound of a stone heart cracking? This is life transformation taking place. Numbers chapter 5 says in the Old Testament, when a Jewish person creates a sin, an egregious act, and they've robbed one of their brothers, they not only have to pay it back in full, but they have to add 20% onto it. He's gone way beyond the law. Perhaps he didn't even know the law in saying, I will pay back $4 for every dollar I've taken. That's an amazing life transformation for someone who said, money is my God. But because he encountered God, he understood money does not matter. He's about to put himself into financial despair if he keeps going like this. Verse 9 And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. If you have read that verse over and over again, if you've grown up in church and you saw that verse, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, you may have missed the understanding that Jesus was declaring at that moment for one of the last times in the last couple weeks of his life, I am God. If you go back to the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah, you will see that God says this. Listen closely as I read it. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Ezekiel 34, 15. I will feed my flock and will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered. Jesus is saying, I am God, and this man, I'm bringing him back into the flock. This is how he answers it. Because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. There is no doubt that Zacchaeus had really cheated people. 
and had made God the center of his life, the God of money, not the God of creation. And the transformation process now is beginning. Stoneheart's cracking. Zacchaeus is starting to turn and saying, this is life transformation. There has to be a turn. That's why I asked you in the beginning, can you point to something in your life that says transformation is taking place? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. There's a scalpel that's just sliced right through Zacchaeus' life. And Jesus gets out this big old measuring rod again and says, Today, salvation has come to this house. He measured the heart transformation. Salvation has come to this house. Jesus weighed him on the scales. He's got him in the balances and says, You qualify. You get it. You understand. Wouldn't you like to have Jesus say that about your house, about your life? Salvation is in your life. This had to have this little guy doing cartwheels. This is like Nicodemus. Did you get this last week? Nicodemus went from being someone who snuck into Jesus' house at night and said, I want to ask you some questions about who you really are, to the point where he's defending him in public before his peers, to the last position where on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, Nicodemus is actually holding Jesus' body in his hands, the dead body of a crucified criminal, and he's a Pharisee. Do you see the life transformation taking place? Look at Zacchaeus. This is the kind of transformation we're looking for. Zacchaeus had learned how to separate himself from his stuff. He learned to say, God, there's nothing between you and me. That's the danger when we possess our stuff. So you have to ask yourself this question. Do I possess my stuff or does it possess me? Is the transformation really there? What can you point to in your life that's keeping you from taking the next step toward God? Zacchaeus looked at it and said, it's money. For you, it might be a relationship. It might be someone in your life who's keeping you from getting closer to God. And you're going to have to deal with that. That's what Zacchaeus did. What can you point to that shows this kind of spiritual fruit in your life? Anything? In God's economy, listen to this. This is a true biblical, stand-on theological truth. In God's economy, every financial decision is also a spiritual decision. You may not agree with that statement. You may need just some time to think through that statement. But everything that you own is not yours. God says, it's mine. Every financial decision is a spiritual decision. And I'm going to tell you right now how to make your life incredibly uncomplicated. Financially, possession-wise, the attachments that you have to relationships, God says it this way. He says three words that will solve your crisis. I own everything. And when he owns everything, 
It takes all the fear and the responsibility away. Yes, you have a stewardship responsibility. But listen to these verses, if I can drive the point home for you. Exodus 19.5, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Talking to Israel. But this is true of everyone here. For the whole earth is mine. Job 1.11, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 1 Timothy 6.7, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Starting from the Old Testament in the very beginning and wrapping it up all the way to the New Testament at the end, God says three words, I own everything. You are merely stewards. Zacchaeus got it. So I ask you a question again. How does God measure transformation in your life? This is how, Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation. Transformed. Do you think that renewing of the mind took place in Zacchaeus' life? Was there a total heart change here? Absolutely. This kind of transformation is the only kind of transformation that Jesus can bring. He's the only one that can do it. Zacchaeus had spent many lonely nights. Think of Ebenezer Scrooge with that piles of money in the movie Christmas Carol. Lonely, empty heart. And all the new friends that he had just earned because of that life transformation. But it's a very personal thing between you and God. When we receive the offerings here at New Hope Church, many people have said, why don't you just pass the offering plate? Months and months ago, when we started talking about forming this church, we said that it would be important to us that people would have a personal, intimate relationship with God. Sometimes when offering plates are passed among a crowd like this, people give out of guilt. God said, I don't want you to give out of guilt. I want you to give out of joy. So having offering boxes in the back of the church, that's an opportunity for those who call New Hope their church to say, this is between me and you, God. And it's just an act that you carry out of worship on your way out the door. All right? That's the reason, the real reason for doing that. It's between you and God. These things that we've talked about this morning, these are measurable transformations. If it's not present in your life, and you can't point back to some fruit saying, I haven't really grown or changed since I've made this commitment. I encourage you to come talk with me or just to do business with God and say, God, I want to see that kind of fruit in my life. Will you show me how to do that? And it doesn't have to be big major steps. I'm not saying you have to give away half of your possessions to have a right relationship with God. Don't miss that. But you have to find those things that stand between you and God. Okay, let's pray. Father, we've taken uh, apart your word this morning in the best way we can in trying to understand better how to become Christ followers that are really sincere about what we do. 
We have sung songs to you, and we have taken communion in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. And we have studied your word. God, I ask for your blessing upon these people in this room, for each of us, because we have set aside this time to understand you better, to know your character and your nature. God, make your people bold this week on your behalf. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.